I went home this past um, week to Minnesota for Thanksgiving, and basically before I could um, sit down on, on Thursday morning, Thanksgiving morning, see the Vikings, Minnesota Vikings were playing the NFL team. My mom told me the Vikings are going to go to the Super Bowl this year. This is the year that they make it. But if you follow sports at all, if you know me at all, or if you know anything about the Minnesota Vikings at all, you know that this is absolutely impossible to happen. The Vikings can never make it to the Super Bowl. They are filled with constant disappointment. See, I've been a Viking fan my whole life, and anyone who's around my age, maybe a little older or younger, their fandom is characterized by three distinct moments. The first moment is, is the year 1998. It was our team was so good. We had, we had um, Randall Cunningham as our quarterback, Randy Moss and Chris Carter as the receivers, and this was the year. We went, won 15 games and only lost one in the, in the regular season. We were the best team. We made it to the, to the semifinals, the NFC Championship game, and it was a close game, but we were tied with the ball, and we were driving down the field. We were going to win the game. We make it into field goal range, and all we needed was a field goal to win. And this was, was easy because we had Gary Anderson, who was the best kicker in the league. He had not missed a kick the entire season. So this, this ball was going to go in, and we were going to go to the Super Bowl, and we were going to win. But he goes up, he misses the kick. Of course, we go to overtime, we lose the game. Traumatizing, as for an eight-year-old. I have a friend named Logan who told me that at the end of that game, he sat there crying as, as the Vikings lost. And he said, the Vikings will never win the Super Bowl. And he has not been a fan since, since, since 1998. We weren't good again for 12 more years until 2010. We had, we had Brett Favre was our quarterback. Uh, this, again, we are going to make it. So 12 years between being good is a long time. So we're really excited. Again, we make it to the, to the NFC Championship game. We're going to make it. But then in that game, we have seven turnovers. Like they just kept dropping the football and the other team kept getting it. And we, we were so close to making it. But again, we lost in overtime. 2016, so six years later than that, um, we were in the playoffs playing the Seahawks and, and we were down by one and we were at the two-yard line and we just needed a field goal to win the game. You, you're so close, you could practically like blow the football through the uprights, but our kicker missed it and we lost and we were out of the playoffs. See, sometimes in life, it can seem that all life is is filled with a bunch of random events that have no coherence or meaning whatsoever. Life is just filled with, with random things after random things. That, that the things that are supposed to happen just don't happen. The things with such a high probability of happening just don't happen. And you experience this if you're a Vikings fan, but you also experience it if you're a human, right? We all experience this at some level. It seems like every week there's a new tragedy in the news that, that doesn't seem to make sense. They don't seem to be getting better. There's maybe fights or, or breakups in your personal life that have broken families or, or fights between friends or, or other people you know. There's times where you, where you lose a job. There's also times where maybe it goes the other way, where you get lucky, where you get something maybe you feel like you shouldn't have gotten or you didn't deserve. We all have times where, where the things that are supposed to happen don't seem to happen. 
And kind of this is how life goes. And, and throughout human history, humans have told stories as a way of, of bringing coherence and meaning to this seemingly random string of events. And people have told different stories for, for throughout human history. A, a long time ago, uh, the main story that was told um, about life and what's important was that, was that our tribe is the best, that our God is the best, that our people are the best. So join us or else we'll fight you or else we'll kill you or else we'll go to war with you. More recently, about 300 years ago, the story being told was that you know what? Humans are, are really great. Humans are really smart, and we're really clever, and we have science. And so just like give us enough time, and we'll kind of figure this whole thing out. We'll figure out how to be a human. We'll figure out the best way to go forward with the world. And this actually worked for a little bit, but then um, the world wars happened, and in the last century, more people were killed in wars than all previous centuries combined. So it kind of makes us think that maybe we didn't have this figured out quite as much as we thought. More recently, a story is being told that maybe there, there's nothing else going on here. It's just the material world. There's just things we can touch and we can feel and we can look at, but there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing uh, we can't see or we can't comprehend. Like, there's no God. There's nothing like that. That's kind of a story being told more recently. But in our tradition, the Christian tradition, uh, which comes also from the Jewish tradition, uh, we told stories as well. One of the stories we told it comes in Genesis, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It starts with a poem, and it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And after each day of creation, there's this refrain that occurs over and over throughout the poem. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. It says God creates more things. He goes, there was evening and then there was morning the second day. And see, now, normally when we think about morning and evening, we think morning is first and then evening, right? But this, this story, this poem almost flips it. It flips it. It goes, there's evening and then there was morning. It's as if God was pulling us from darkness to light. That God was pulling the earth, was creating the earth, was sending the earth on some trajectory from darkness to light. Scientists have stories they tell as well. This, scientists generally agree that the earth was created, was started 13.8 billion years ago by a, by a tiny point. <laughs> when scientists talk about this, about what this point was, they, they sound almost poetic. There's one scientist who just talks about the, the beginning of the earth and they call it, he calls it a sextillion ton pinprick of cataclysmic energy is what started the world. A sextillion ton pinprick of cataclysmic energy. And, and what they say happened after this pinprick of cataclysmic energy is that, that there were particles and then particles bonded with other particles to create atoms and atoms bonded with other atoms to create molecules and molecules bonded with other molecules to create cells. And there's this constant, um, the universe is constantly expanding and things are joining with each other. And, and they say the universe still is, is almost, is changing and growing. They say the universe is constantly increasing in complexity, in depth, 
and unity. That science says this. Complexity, depth, and unity at, at small levels, at, at our, like our inmost being at the quantum level, and also like macro levels as the universe keeps expanding. I think we all have moments where things will happen to us or things will happen in the world and it will lead us to believe that there is nothing else going on here. There's no bigger picture. There's no story. But what we see, even in, in science, is that the universe is increasing and it's expanding and it's going somewhere. And it leaves us with some questions. We see the universe is being pulled forward as if there's this trajectory of an increasing in complexity, depth, and unity. And we're left to wonder what is pulling it forward. To the surprise of maybe very few of you, I was a little bit of a precocious child. Um, I, uh, with, my dad was an engineer and he kind of was helping me learn algebra before kindergarten and we would argue physics at the dinner table. And I had a big desire to be clever. I liked solving problems. I liked figuring out the puzzle. You'd start with your known variables and you'd look at what your unknown was and you'd try to work your way there. And I brought this desire to be clever to my faith. I thought, surely, Revelation is the book we should all be reading because that's the one that had yet to be happened, the one yet to come. So I was convinced this was the book we should focus all of our energy on, and I wanted to figure it out. The three kings in uh, Jesus' story were kind of heroes, right? They had their little puzzle, and they solved it. They figured out when Christ would be born, and then they got a uh, carol named after them, right? The height of fame <clears throat> on the level of Rudolph. My... Uh, background, my education kind of all supported um, this enthusiasm. Uh, I went to a non-denominational Bible church that taught me to take the scriptures very seriously and fairly literally. And so I believed in a 10,000-year-old earth. I believed in a seven-day creation because there was evening and then there was morning. And it's interesting, somebody who kind of wants to solve problems kind of rejects science, um, at least on, on some level, because science is a method for problem solving. That's chiefly what it's trying to do, is, is figure out what we know and how we know and build towards something we can learn. I had thought that evolution had basically arisen because uh, people weren't comfortable with uh, God, with a being, with the call to a pure life, and therefore they had come up with some other theory, and so I kind of quietly rejected them. Um, as I finish my Christian education uh, in high school, I end up at a Christian college, and I take a class um, as part of my core curriculum called Faith and Science One. And in this, we learned about kind of the history of science and, and how groups had responded to scientific discovery in the past. And we started with Newton and Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler and Brahe, and we learned about the solar system and how the sun being the center of the solar system and not the earth caused people to lose their minds, right? How, how can that be? How can that be the God that we know if the earth is not the center? And that was a very, very important thing. And now, hundreds of years later, we look back and we kind of scoff. And 
they, they incorporated that into their beliefs and then they thought, okay, the orbits of the planets must be perfectly circular because that's pure and clever and that's divine. And then they found, no, that they aren't perfect circles. And they thought there must be exactly seven planets because that's pure. No, we found more. Then we lost one. Poor Pluto. <laughs> and they thought, you know, the orbits must progress in some sort of known geometrical fashion that the shapes, a cube and then a pyramid, would, would define where the next orbit was. And that was really close, but it was not quite right. And we kept trying to define what the world was, and we kept falling short and getting it just a little wrong. And so I'm going through a whole class period, a whole quarter, listening to these lectures and somewhat feeling superior. I wouldn't do that, clearly. That's what these people did hundreds of years ago. They were so wrong. And then the class was supposed to end with a couple weeks on quantum mechanics and relativity, basically through Einstein. And we ran out of time a little bit, so we condensed two weeks down into two lectures. And the professor started explaining something called the double-slit experiment. And this is an experiment where matter is... Uh, we don't know where it is. It's, it's not something that it's, it's unknown. It's fundamentally unknowable. And that really shaped, that really shook my faith about I had believed God was some super clever person who was building up from these first principles. And if that base first principle itself was uncertain, that affected what I could believe. So maybe that idea doesn't bother you, but it, it definitely bothered me. I uh, finished the quarter, um, was thinking about it throughout spring break, came back and, and asked my friend, do you think that this is a problem? Would you attend a lecture that said, can you be a quantum physicist and a Christian? And she looked at me confused and honestly smiled and laughed and said, no, I wouldn't attend that. That doesn't sound very interesting at all. <clears throat> But, but it caused a big problem to me, and, and that experiment actually gets more strange. The, the, the camera was on the front side of the double slit. You can put it on the back side where it, it basically, after you fired it through the slits, then you would observe it. And in that situation, the electron is changing what it did in the past, and it still does that. And so now you have not only matter that is un, unknowable, but time starts breaking down too. And, and that just really throws me off <laughs> to think of a God who's created a world on building blocks with some linearity and that being questioned. Um, so that was Faith in Science 1. The next quarter I walked into Faith in Science 2. And this class primarily had two objectives. One, it was to uh, explain how it was possible to be a Christian and an evolutionist. And two, to start talking about what the soul was and where that was. I think the administration knew there'd be a lot of people like me from certain uh, religious backgrounds that um, evolution was, was kind of something you instantly rejected and distanced yourself from. So it took weeks of conversation and, and really years of um, thinking afterwards for me to kind of accept that. Like I said, if, if, if evolution is true, it challenges some of the things that I'd thought about what it means to be human, about what it means to be made in God's image, about where kind of humanity 
fit into a world designed by God about what God meant. The, the questions about the soul arise from as we know more and more about the brain and we figure out how neurons act and how regions of the brain correspond to different things, there's less and less room for a soul. There's even less need for a soul as an explanation of things. Personality starts to emerge from brain states. There's a problem that I think a lot of Christians really in past centuries have fallen into is to kind of ascribe anything unexplained to God. We don't know about that, therefore that's God. The problem with that is as you learn more and as more and more things become explained, God shrinks and God becomes smaller and God can only continue to become smaller. I had spent a full quarter kind of scoffing at people who struggled with scientific advances and incorporating with their faith and now the roles were flipped and I had to struggle through these questions. I had a choice um, about how to approach it. Sometimes it was just easier to be ignorant and to choose that and I chose it sometimes. Maybe I still do. But there's sometimes the questions just never quite go away. They're always there. You might ignore them for a few years but eventually you feel like you have to respond to them. Sometimes you don't actually get an answer. Sometimes you just kind of shrug your shoulders. Right now, science can't quite explain what's called quantum entanglement, where we have two things that as soon as you measure this, this changes kind of what it does, and you know something over here, and this information that travels at a distance faster than light should be impossible, according to Einstein, and yet we can observe it. And not knowing can be frustrating, (laughs) can be a challenge. It doesn't mean we shouldn't ask. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't explore. I've I've learned a lot in the exploration, and it's strange to say that quantum physics is an important influence on my faith. I've gotten more comfortable with ambiguity. I require less certainty. I'm okay not knowing some things. The things I know are now kind of simpler guideposts for me. God exists, God loves us, and we should love others. In the book of Genesis, the Bible begins with a poem. It begins with with God creating the heavens and the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. We have God taking the world somewhere. We have the world on a trajectory. The Bible, in the Bible, there's actually lots of poetry, but there's also lots of other genres in this book as well. There's, there's poetry, there's prose, there's biographies, there's history accounts, there's genealogies, there's parables, there's apocalypses, and, and so much more. We believe that the Bible is the word of God and so you think uh, it would give us this clear picture of who God is and it would describe God perfectly and that if we just read the Bible in the right way then we would have a 100% clear picture of who God is and, and what God does. But also in the Bible we find um, God as a warrior. We find, we find God who is a peacemaker we have a God who is 
has a territorial allegiance who is for one nation and one tribe. We also have a God who transcends all territorial divides. We have a God of wrath and we have a God of extreme forgiveness. And people have different approaches to tackling these uh, differences in Scripture. There's one group of people who will say that, that any difference like this proves that the Bible is unreliable, that the authors aren't, don't know what they're talking about, and so the Bible, it, we shouldn't use it. We should just throw it out, and there's no point in reading it anymore. It was good for a time, but not anymore. Then there's another group of people who, who will try to explain away all differences. Who, who it sounds like they're almost jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop as a way to reconcile how we have a God who's a warrior sometimes and God who's a peacemaker sometimes, a God who forgives some cities and towns and a God who destroys other towns. And I don't think this is wrong. I actually enjoy trying to figure out God. I think it's one of, of the joys we have as a human. So I would lean more towards the second one of how do we explain everything? How do we have reasoning and understanding for all that we find in the Bible? But the authors of Scripture don't seem to be bothered by these differences the way some people are. The authors seem to embrace the differences. They don't seem to pretend that they don't exist. They actually have, there's so many different names and metaphors for God that we find in the Bible. We find God is a father, God is rock, God is a friend, God is a shepherd, God is a bread of life, God is light of the world, God is counselor, God is midwife, God is comforter. There's even God is a mother bird protecting her young. I bet you didn't know that was in there. I didn't until I googled names of God this week. But a mother bird protecting their young. We have so many different names of God. And I think it's, that, it's not that God is, is unnameable or unknowable, but that God is so great and big and beyond anything that we can know that, that we... It's, God, it's like God is omni-nameable. That all these authors are just trying to, to point towards something that they just can't fully grasp. I think our experience with God is like, like a ship submerged in the ocean. That, that the ocean contains the entirety of the ship and the ship contains the entirety of the ocean. But the ship only contains a small part of the ocean while the ocean contains the whole ship. If we are the ship and the ocean is God, we, we are filled and consumed by the presence of God, but also this, this consuming and this filling also testifies to a God that is so much greater than we can know. In the New Testament, we get to see the story of Jesus. Jesus is the clearest picture of God that we get in the Bible. The story of Jesus is God so loved the world that he came to earth, that he put on skin, that, that some places say he just moved into the neighborhood. He lived among us. And this idea of, in the book of John, it writes that the word, he writes about Jesus as the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God in the beginning. That, that, that we have this, this Jesus Christ, the, the Christ that was always there from the beginning of time. And the Christ comes to earth in the image of Jesus, in the human form of Jesus. 
We all maybe are familiar with the story of Jesus came to earth, he lived, he did teachings, he did miracles, um, he, he died, and he, was, he rose again. And after Jesus, Jesus did this, people started writing about him. They started writing letters back and forth about who Jesus was and what, what this event means. One of the first people who did this is named the Apostle Paul. His name is Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. Others called him the Apostle Paul as well. Um, but interestingly, when he wrote about Jesus, he actually didn't write so much about Jesus' life. Paul never really wrote like, Jesus walked on water one day. Paul didn't write, Jesus fed the 5,000 one day. He actually wrote more about, about this idea of the Christ and, and Jesus who, who was crucified and rose again. And when he wrote about this Christ, he, he wrote some really interesting things. One thing he wrote in the book of Colossians is that Christ holds all things together. Christ holds all things together. In the book of Acts, he says that Christ is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. That Christ is so much bigger than a a guy with a beard up in the sky or is so much bigger than any uh, science or any, uh, I mean, electrons are very small, but but that Christ is somehow, there's this energy or this force or this glue that, that is so much greater than anything we can even comprehend that is something in whom we live and move and have our being. I believe if we were to ask most people about the mystery of God or questions they have for God, they would, they would jump right to, why did God do this? Why did God allow this tragedy to happen? Why did God allow these people to suffer? Why did God allow this person to die? And while these, these questions are shared by lots of people, I am almost wonder if we're asking the wrong questions. Because this Christ that Paul testifies to, the Christ in whom we live and move and have our being, is, almost comes before any events take place. It's like the foundation of the world, that this, this energy and force that is within everything is so much bigger than a God who's maybe like a puppet master up in the sky. I'm not sure how well you're able to understand that video we watched. I sort of was, but, but I just, the, this idea that, that something changes when it's observed. It is an amazing thought that something behaves one way, but then if you observe it, it behaves a different way. These can be amazing and mind-blowing, but I also think that they resonate with us at an extremely deep level. Because I think they speak of this deep energy and this force, this, this mystery that is somehow in all things. That all things are, are much more connected than we think. They testify, too, that there's something more going on here that we can't necessarily understand or comprehend or explain. When we see videos like that, I think of Paul again writing that the Christ is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. 